Well, just give me a minute to get up on the platform, and I'm going to take you to the book of 1 Kings. So if you have a Bible with you this morning, how about if you take a minute and turn there? It's in the Old Testament. If you're not familiar with the Bible, you probably want to look in the index in the front. If, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, they're uh, in the pew rack around you, so you can follow along that way. But it's also going to be on the screen, so you can see it up there. 1 Kings in chapter 17 is where I want to take you to this morning. A very familiar old story if you grew up in church about a guy by the name of Elijah. Next week, we're gonna get back into the book of Acts and finish out that series, but we stopped for Christmas for just a little bit. So a question for you this morning, just you gotta be really honest, gotta be willing to out yourself in this room full of people. How many people made a resolution to get in better shape in the next year? Okay. Hey, I've got my hand up, I did too, all right? Didn't work out so well this last year, so I thought I'd repeat it again, all right? So many of us come to the point where we, we decide to make resolutions, brand new year, brand new beginning. You, you made a great decision. You're starting off the new year in church. Good for you. I'm pleased with that. Pretty excited. Okay, so you're here. Some of you maybe made a resolution about what you're going to do with the new year ahead of you. I found for myself personally to get in better shape doesn't only require me being in a place where there's good equipment, but I actually need a trainer. I need somebody to come alongside me and push me really hard because I'm not going to push myself, right? I just don't push myself as hard as I can. I think I've hit the wall and a trainer has shown me that I can go a whole lot farther than I think I can go. So physically training ourselves is really important, but I, I want to ask you this question. Have you thought about what it would mean to get in better spiritual shape? The year ahead of you is going to hold lots of opportunities. What kind of things might God be bringing your way intentionally to put you in a place where you're getting in better spiritual shape? When you think you've hit the wall, maybe God wants to take you a little bit further. You're going to see in Elijah's situation this morning that God pushes him beyond what you think a human, capable, a human capability would be. Where you think a human would say, now that's it, I'll draw the line right there, God takes him to the next level, and he sets a really, really high bar for him. So there's this thing written about Elijah in the New Testament, in the book of James, James chapter 5, and it starts out this way, James 5, 17. It says that Elijah was a man just like us, and this is a really, really intimidating verse, and I'll tell you why. Because of the remainder of the verse, look, look at the rest of it up on the screen. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Now, that doesn't sound like an ordinary guy. He reboots the entire nation of Israel, physically, spiritually, emotionally, economically, he gets an entire nation back on track. James says he's a guy just like us. Now, if you're praying for your nation, if you're praying for your family, it requires a couple things of you. First of all, it, it requires for you to be on the same page as God. You can't expect God to honor your prayers if you're living a life completely egregiously apart from God. So you gotta be on the same page as God. That, that's one thing right up front. And you'll find that about Elijah. He's on the same page as God. But the second thing is this. You gotta be in the place where you're willing to ask God to do whatever he needs to do. And that is really, really hard. I'm gonna come full circle all the way back around to that thought as we work through this story this morning. But let's jump right into it, and we'll see in verse one of chapter 17 exactly how Elijah plays this out. 
It says in verse one, now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, Ahab is the king of the land, by the way, said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now, no king wants to be intimidated by a nobody, a wanderer who's just made his way into the palace. Elijah is rough and he's weathered and he has no army that marches before him. He has no royal papers in his hand. He's a nobody from nowhere, no credentials whatsoever. Now, if you wanna put yourself on the hit list of a murderous king, and that's what Ahab is, just try walking into their palace and saying, your kingdom is about to collapse and it's by my word that it's gonna happen. He literally is saying, Wall Street is about to explode and I hold the trigger in my hand. Now, that's a threat. And he's threatening the most murderous king in his day. I'm not sure that Elijah understands what it will cost him to be the tool that God's going to use. In context, the evil rulers of our day are very familiar to us. We, we understand that. We start thinking of names of individuals who have perhaps lived in our lifetime like Idi Amin, maybe Nikolai Ceausescu in Romania, Joseph Stalin in Russia, more present-day ruler, Saddam Hussein, individuals who have wiped out millions of people. We think of them as being really, really bad, and they absolutely are. But when you contrast them to the ancient kings of the Old Testament, you see some really, really wicked individuals. God-hating behavior off the charts. Many of the kings in the ancient world were that way. Ranking near the top of the list of the bad boys of the past is King Ahab. By God's own word, God says he's the worst guy that ever lived, the worst king. Look, look with me on the screen. 1 Kings 21, 25, there never was a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. Urged on by Jezebel, his wife, he behaved in the vilest manner. Now, Ahab and Jezebel, his queen, they're really wealthy. They got a very powerful nation. Strong militarily, strong financially, they're able to import products from all over the world. He's so successful, he's able to commit 2,000 chariots to a battle with another nation known as Assyria. In the midst of the battle, he commits 10,000 troops. So how do we know things like this? Not only from the Bible, but extra biblical information. You'll see an image on the screen of this, um, we'll call it a clay earthen plate that was dug up by archeologists. Uh, the king of Assyria actually recorded what King Ahab gave to his nation. So assuming that none of you read ancient Assyrian this morning, just let me tell you what it says in there. Uh, the king himself wrote it down this way. King Ahab committed a force of 10,000 infantry and 2,000 chariots to the Assyrian war. You know what that means though? The image is fascinating. There's extra biblical information for a guy like King Ahab, but here's what it means. The nation of Israel was so powerful, it had extra resources to even send 10,000 soldiers out and to send out 2,000 chariots to help out an, another country. Now here's another detail about Ahab, he worships Baal, he doesn't worship the one true God. Matter of fact, he and his wife Jezebel have led the entire nation away from the worship of the one true God to worshiping Baal, when you see his name, B-A-A-L in the Bible, you pronounce it that way, Baal. Baal was a way to worship Satan. 
And Baal led the people into all kinds of egregious behavior. We'll get into that in just a minute. But here's a major detail about Baal. When they worshiped him, they believed that he was the god, small g, over livestock and over crops and over the weather, meaning earth, wind, and fire. So keep that in mind as you move into this story. Go with me to verse 2. The word of the Lord came to him, meaning Elijah. Go away from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kirith, which is east of the Jordan. It shall be that you will drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. Now this is a 70-mile hike that God has told him to go on. Why tell Elijah to get out of town instead of stay and fight? Well, one, for protection. God knows Ahab's reputation. God knows everybody, both good and evil. God knows Ahab's potential for destroying Elijah, so he's going to put him into a witness protection program. There's going to be inevitable fallout from this famine that's about to take place on the planet. Look with me at what God knows about Ahab because we see in chapter 18, verse 10, that the king's servant, Obadiah, when he finally comes across to Elijah, he says, man, the king has been hunting for you. Look with me at verse 10. For I swear by God that the king has searched every nation and kingdom on earth from end to end to find you. And each time when he was told Elijah isn't here, King Ahab forced the king of that nation to swear to the truth of its claim. He puts Elijah on the most wanted list. So that's the the very first reason for protection, but the second reason applies more to you and I. Sometimes God has to put us on the shelf, and sometimes it's for preparation. And you're going to see over the course of three years that Elijah is put into this place where he's protected by God, but he's put on the shelf so that God can prepare him. I've had some association with boot camps and boot camp training, and I understand one thing about boot camps. If they're known for one thing, it's for taking an extraordinary, ordinary citizen and making them into an extraordinary warrior. That's what boot camps are designed to do, and it requires intense training. We think we hit the limit in our own capability humanly, but the trainer always knows that we can go a little bit further. God created you and I in such a way that he knows that we are capable of far more than we ever dare dream, that we are capable of doing more than most think. We just don't push ourselves hard enough. So hear me on this. God knows you, and he knows there is capacity in you for beauty and inner strength like you have never dreamed of. It has yet to be completely developed. You are sons and daughters of the king, all right? And the truth of God's word is that he knows us so well. He knows what we're capable of. He knows you can do more than you imagine. You just don't like going through the training process. I don't like going through the training process. But what it produces in the end, well, you get to see an example of it in this story this morning. So I'm thinking, in Elijah's case, he's thinking in his mind, what do you mean the ravens are going to be feeding me? I'm going into 2015 thinking, and right away I'm thinking, man, God, I've done exactly what you've asked me to do. I went in and I threatened the most powerful king. I told him that you're going to act, you're going to stop the rain. You mean there's more that I've got to do? But God's objective is always to prepare us for greater things. So he's going to put Elijah into this training program. Three years in the wilderness. Go with me to verse 6. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening and he would drink from the brook. Now, I don't know what you think about ravens when you picture them, but you need to be picturing clearly what they really are. They're scavengers, right? So what kind of meat do you think that they're bringing to Elijah? Okay, we're talking about roadkill, right? Now, these are the kind of birds who go and pick dead flesh off from the bones of animals that have been killed. 
There's gonna be a drought in the land, three years of famine, so there's gonna be plenty of animals to pick the flesh off from, and they're coming over and dropping the meat for Elijah. So we're not talking about porterhouse steaks here, right? We're talking about dead roadkill. So we understand Jewish way of thinking. If you understand the Old Testament at all, you know that Jews have this thing about being around animals that are unclean. Well, ravens were right in that category because they are constantly coming in contact with dead bodies. So you've got ravens who are picking flesh off the bones in contact with the dead bodies, unclean birds who are flying over and bringing him meat. Where they're getting the bread from, I don't know. Now, human nature is going to say, God, please act now. I, I don't want to go through this myself, but God wants to teach us endurance. So he teaches us not to focus on the circumstances. You hear that? God teaches us not to focus on the circumstances, focus on the objective. So he's going to step it up a notch. Go to the next verse, verse 7. It happened after a while that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. How severe is this drought? Elijah stood before the king and said, there's not only going to not be rain, there's not even going to be dew on the land. No rain, no dew, the creek dries up. Human nature, I'm going to focus on the water. God, you can make water come out of stones. Can't you turn the faucet back on just for me? But God wants us to focus on the one who makes the water. So he's got other plans for Elijah. And he's going to send him on another 70-mile hike. This time, he's going to send him right into the heart of Jezebel's hometown, Jezebel's own country, this wicked queen who's ruling over the land. See, what you should be noticing here is that what Elijah has done on God's behalf ultimately is affecting him personally. There's personal sacrifice involved. Whatever pain the drought is causing... Whatever the circumstances of how severe the famine is, he's also suffering for the sake of God's kingdom. So let's ask ourselves a question this morning. Do you want to see God move today in our nation? Do you want to see God move today in our nation in the same way that you see him move in the lives of the ancients of the past? If we come to that conclusion, you have to ask yourself this question. When is the last time I asked God, Please do whatever it takes. Gets a little more dicey at that point, doesn't it? Because then it begins to involve us. God, would you do whatever it takes in my life to bring things into order for your purposes? When we study these individuals whom we think of as the heroes of the faith, with those whom we regard with a really high position like Elijah, we look at these individuals in we are amazed with what they've accomplished, even though James says they're ordinary individuals just like us. I will tell you that each of these heroes of the faith will tell you one thing that is a constant truth in Scripture. The journey to deep relationship with God and seeing God move powerfully this way, it always comes as a result of a very lengthy disciplining process, a lengthy training process. Let's move forward into the next verse, and I want you to jump all the way down to chapter 18 and verse 1. We're taking this in big chunks because there's so much detail in the story. You should read it later yourself when you get a chance. But verse 1 says this, Now it happened after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the face of the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. 
What an incredibly long, lonely walk this had to be. He's traveling on foot through the countryside and seeing dead carcasses. The very thing that he had prayed for, that God would bring against his country, has now ravaged the countryside. There's not only no crops, there's tumbleweeds all over the place. Barren wasteland, three years with no rain. California knows what that looks like. They've gone through this a very long time themselves. Drought after drought after drought. This is what they're living through. The smell of death is in the air. And then Elijah runs into Obadiah's, the servant of the Lord, or the servant of uh, Ahab. He runs into him and Obadiah sees him and says, is that really you? Elijah's response back to him is, yeah, it's really me. You need to go tell King Ahab I'm coming back to meet with him. So the next thing we see when we jump all the way down to verse 17 is Ahab coming to meet with Elijah. And Ahab went to meet with Elijah, verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is this you, you troubler of Israel? There's lots of detail I don't have time to get into, but do you notice that he doesn't even recognize him? It's been three years, no haircut, no beard shave, right? No showers. Nobody's taking showers. There's, there's no water. And he sees Elijah, and he doesn't even recognize him. But then he uses this huge insult. And in the English language, it treats it really lightly. He uses the word akar. The Hebrew word akar means something much more intense than troubler. You have a washing machine at home, or you use one at the laundromat, you, you know what an agitator is. The thing in the very center of the washing machine that works back and forth and roils up the water, he's calling him that. You are the one who's bringing all of this destruction. You're disturbing the entire nation. You're the agitator. Well, watch how Elijah responds back to him, verse 18. He said, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and you have followed the Baals. Elijah is really quick with the truth, even though he's speaking to the most powerful man in the nation. And this is intense. He's telling him, you have brought devastation to this country. Literally, if you go and read the story a little bit further, he's, he's accusing him of this so intensely because you'll see that he's got 850 Satan worshipers eating at the king's table every single day. 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah, all Satan worshipers in the king's palace. He's willing to call evil by its name and confront it face to face. And you may think that that's not too politically correct, Mark, to call people names like that. Well, have you ever seen the things that Jesus said about people in the New Testament? Have you ever called someone a brood of vipers? I never have. Stand in a social circle, right, with a group of people who are the leaders of the nation and say to them, you sons of Satan. I mean, that's not politically correct, right? Okay, those are the titles that Jesus used of individuals who were living completely egregiously against God, even though they knew better, and that's the difference. It's one thing for a person to live against the things of God who doesn't know any better, but it's another thing for someone who knows better and willingly says, no, not interested. See, you find Elijah speaking to Ahab this way because Ahab knows better. He's watching the dismantling of his nation. So he's willing to call evil by its own name right to its face. Go with me to verse 19, and he gives instructions about what they're supposed to do. They're going to go through a little bit of a test here. It says in verse 19, Now then send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel. 
together with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So the king listens to the test, the challenge, and he says, okay, I'll, I'll honor that test and challenge. This is what he does in verse 20. So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. That's a really embarrassing silence. If God is God, follow him. If Baal, then follow Baal. But the people said nothing. Here is the indicator of a nation in desperate trouble. Elijah's words bounce off the mountain. If God is God, follow him. Crickets. No response whatsoever. See, you need hear nothing more about the state of their hearts than that verse right there. It's incredibly telling. Ahab and his wife Jezebel have literally led the nation into confusion. They can't even reason right from wrong anymore. They don't know which way to go, and they've allowed someone else to drag them into utter spiritual desolation. Here's the truth of Scripture. One man with God is a greater majority than the majority. One individual with God is a greater majority than the majority. Elijah stands before an entire nation that has turned their back on God. They're willing to say, no. Now they're in a place of confusion. They don't even know which way to go. So Elijah, we're going to find out in just a moment, is completely alone. He's by himself. He's the only one left who's following after God. And he calls the nation out. What are you willing to do? One man with God, a greater majority than the majority. We come forward to this point with a question. Do you personally have an Ahab in your life? Do you have someone or something that has stepped between you and God that you have allowed to pull you away from a true, strong relationship with the Father? Is there someone or something that's stepped in between that's completely clouding your ability to grow strongly with Christ? If that's the case, or if you suspect that's the case, I would encourage you to go to prayer. You could do it right now where you're sitting and just offer up a whisper to God, God, is this true of me? Is there an Ahab in my life? Is there something that's pulling me away from you? Would you show me? God will honor that. Just, just ask him. Ask God. He'll show you that. Well, let's move forward in the story. We go to verse 22, and we find, Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now let them give us two oxen and let them choose one ox for themselves and cut it up and place it on the wood and put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other ox and lay it on the wood and I will not put a fire under it. Then you call upon the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire, he is God. All the people said, that is a good idea, right? Okay, you can't get an answer out of them on a spiritual question, but give us dinner and a show, we're in. All right, we want the entertainment. Uh, I want to explain to you the, the ox component, why this is being mentioned here in the way that it is, and I need a volunteer this morning. So I wonder if there's one individual who would read for us Leviticus 
chapter 16 and verse six. So somebody look that up and I'll help you to understand what's going on. I'll ask you to read that in just a minute. But Leviticus, that's an Old Testament book, Leviticus chapter 16 and verse six. There's a principle going on with the request of the ox that the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah would not understand because they're not followers of God. But this man, Elijah, understands. There's an ancient tradition that God instituted himself for the leader of the nation, for the spiritual leader to do something on his own behalf before he would represent the people. Does somebody happen to have Leviticus 16? Would you read that for us, Cody? I need you to stand up and read it really loud. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and for his household. Okay, I'm gonna have you read it one more time. Why don't you turn around and face so they can hear you in the back. Good school teacher voice, well done, thank you. Okay, you catch what's going on there? Aaron was the high priest of Israel. God said, Aaron, before you can make an offering on behalf of the people, you gotta make a sin offering for yourself. And it's done with an ox. You notice Elijah didn't ask for doves, he didn't ask for grain, he didn't ask for a goat, he didn't ask for sheep. Even if you're not familiar with the sacrificial system, you know that all those things are involved. He specifically asks for an ox because he's the spiritual leader of his nation. And he's coming before God, asking God to look upon his own heart first. God, examine me. Examine me, see what I'm doing. And you think God's gonna honor that? That kind of humility? So he's willing to say, bring two ox. You bring one ox for those guys and bring one ox for me. And he goes through the ritual tradition of making a Hebrew sacrifice of this ox. That's completely what's going on. So if you want to comprehend how confident Elijah is in that God's going to respond in power, you've got to really appreciate the test that's going on here. Baal, Baal, is considered the god over the elements meaning he controls whether or not there's water, wind, fire, right? Well, he hasn't done so well over the past three years. There's been famine on the land, and as much as they've sacrificed to him, Baal can't do anything about it. So it seemed like when Elijah throws that out as a test, it's a very simple test. The, the prophets of Baal should have no contest. should be a slam dunk for them. So let's watch how the story goes. Verse 25, so Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one ox for yourself and prepare it first, for you are many, and call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. Then they took the ox which was given them, and they prepared it, and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered, and they leaped about the altars which they made. For, for the sake of how many different individuals are represented in this auditorium. I'm not gonna go into the description of what Baal sacrifice looks like. If you wanna know about it, read about it yourself later. It's absolutely gruesome and grotesque, but know this, it always involved human sacrifice. It's just who they were, incredibly gross. And so they go through this ritual of dancing about the altar, prancing and chanting frantically, cutting themselves with knives. And we see this in verse 27. It came about at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, called out with a loud, and called and said, call out with a loud voice for he is God. He is either occupied or gone aside. 
or he's on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and needs to be awakened. See, Elijah's trash-talking him, right? Gone aside in the Hebrew language means going to the bathroom, right? You got a God that's going to the bathroom? Call really, really loud because he might be in the men's room, okay? Ancient trash talk. Watch verse 28. So they cried with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out of them. When midday was past, they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. This goes on for like eight or nine hours, right? I forget when the evening sacrifice is, but it's sometime around five or six o'clock. We're talking about the evening sacrifice of the Jewish people. So the prophets of Baal are frantic. They're slicing themselves, blood's flowing down, their sweat-soaked bodies. The ritual hits this fevered pitch, and there's no response. Evening comes, no voice. Now, when you come to this next verse, and we're coming right into the end, read this really tenderly. Because in the Hebrew language, it's very clear. This is the way Elijah approached it with his people. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. All the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the numbers of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. So with these stones... He built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar, large enough to hold two measures of seed. This is a very, very cool section of Scripture, especially when you appreciate visually what's going on here. Elijah has 12 stones, real large boulders, because this is a national issue. It's not really about the famine. It's not really about the water. It's not really a monetary issue, even though their economy has been destroyed. Those are all serious symptoms. What it's really about is the heart of the nation. Who does the nation identify as God? Who really is God? So the rebuild that's taking place here, the rebuild of the altar, it demonstrates a couple things that kind of just jumped out at me this week. I'm working through this. Don't ever mix the things of God with evil. Easy for Elijah to go to their altar. There are 850 guys. They must have built a massive altars. He's, he's one man. He's got to go gather his own boulders and put together his own altars because he's not going to mix evil things with God. And it leads into the next thing. The second thing is he's reviving public worship. He's willing to say, this is the way our ancient forefathers had been taught to worship God. You and I should never, ever be embarrassed of the public worship of God. Obviously, you're not. He's saying loudly this morning. We should never be embarrassed by the public worship of God because it recenters people. That's what Elijah's doing here, publicly saying, this is what it looks like to worship the one. And you've got to love the heart of Elijah. The odds are incredibly stacked against him. Hundreds of prophets of Baal. The entire nation silent before him, but one man with God is a greater majority than the majority church. One man completely sold out is a greater majority than the majority. Follow the story to the conclusion. It says this in verse 33, then he arranged the wood and cut the ox in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four pitchers. If you happen to have a King James Version of the Bible this morning, it's got a, a little bit better translation there. It actually says four barrels. 
That's more accurate. This is a pretty large amount of water. Don't, don't picture a, a little pitcher of water, okay? Fill four pitchers with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. The water flowed around the altar and he also filled the trench with water in the midst of a drought, right? In the midst of a drought, Elijah is amazing people by commanding these four barrels to be filled, poured all over the offering, completely soaking the wood, and then filling the trench three times over. This is really persuasive because here's what the arguments could be. Well, it's a drought, Elijah. It must have been a spark. Everything's dry, everything's like tinder. When fire falls and it consumes the altar, they could immediately argue. So he's being really brilliant here. He's removing all potential doubt. Watch with me in verse 36. At the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done all these things at your word. So all hope of igniting wet wood seems completely lost. And then Elijah steps up to the plate and essentially he's saying, God, would you put yourself on display? Would you show yourself powerful? And what an amazing contrast. The prophets of Baal, they cried for eight to nine hours. You look at what Elijah said here, it takes less than 60 seconds. You don't think that prayers have to be long. They don't have to be. This is a righteous man praying a righteous way, asking God to intervene less than a minute and the difference is completely because of the one who is addressed. There's no small, small God with a small G. This is a God with the capital G. Go with me to the next verse, verse 37. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their heart back again. And all the unknowns of why three years of famine is immediately answered. Why did we have to go through this downturn? Why did our economy have to be destroyed? Why did we have to watch people die? Why? All of the unknowns are answered. You are turning their hearts back. God sometimes has to take us down to our knees in order to get our hearts back in the right position. You see it right here. What you should be seeing is it's about the relationship. The same God in the New Testament who says, I want a relationship with you, says it in the Old Testament as well. It's all about the relationship, God turning the hearts back. You and I know that wet wood isn't supposed to ignite, but only our God can take what is thoroughly, completely unusable and do with it what man thinks is impossible. Amen, church? Only God can do that. And in the midst of it, he brings glory to himself. He's taken lives that are in this church that people would say were completely unusable and brings it back to himself, things that we would consider to be wet wood. God says, that one's mine. You see it here in this story. Only God can take what is thoroughly unusable and do with it what man believes is completely impossible and bring glory to himself. Watch verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Now we know that fire doesn't fall, right? Fire always goes up. So God's breaking his own rules here. Fire falling is defying gravity. And it's falling from heaven, so out of a blue sky, like lightning, God answers and the fire falls and consumes not only the wood, but everything around it. The sacrifice, the water, the rocks, the soil, even the stones. But more significant than the fire falling is what happens to the hearts of the people. Look with me at the next verse, the last one, verse 39. When all the people saw it, 
they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Truth before God will take any of us to a Mount Carmel experience. He has to take us through the wilderness time of training. You see that in Elijah's life. God had to take him through this really, really hard time. And the wisdom that he gained and the knowledge of God's purposes are all gained in the wilderness experience. God uses the wilderness times in your life to refine you and to shape you into his likeness so that he can use you for greater things. Some here today, some in our church, are living through famine times. Spiritually, physically, Financially, some are living through economic times that are just like a famine. And reasonably, in our human nature, we'd like solutions. And more likely than not, because you've probably been going through some of these famines for a while, you've already arrived at solutions that God could do to get things back on track in your life, to meet your objectives. Have you stopped to ask God what his objectives are? In the midst of the really, really hard time, have you stopped and said, God, why are you doing this? And I mean why in the right way. Will you show me your purposes in this? Now, I say that as a person who's gone through those times. I know exactly what that's like. I totally relate to on all those levels. We can understand what it is to want God to intervene. And perhaps you believe you've seen things as hard as they possibly can be. You may even feel like, I'm, I'm in the place where I'm being fed by ravens right now. Well, when you arrive at that place, that's when sometimes the water faucet is turned off also. And you think things are as hard as they can possibly get. Only for God to show you, no, there's a little more refining to do. Your faucet needs to be turned off, and you're not sure what to do next, so I'm gonna ask you this question. Have you asked God what he wants to accomplish through the issues that you're facing? Now, here's the hard truth of it. Until you do that, you have not fully surrendered it to the master. You've reserved a little bit for yourself. I've been there, I've done that. I've held on to those issues until God breaks you to the point where you're on your knees literally saying, Whatever you have to do, God. I'm willing to let you do whatever you have to do. I I wanna remind you of what we've been hammering here for the last half hour together. One individual with God is a greater majority than the majority. Even when it looks like you're outnumbered and the odds are stacked against you, God specializes in those circumstances. That's why his word says, I can do all things through you when you've got Christ in you. So the writer of scripture says, I can do all things in me through Christ who gives me strength. God never cares when the odds are stacked against you. So when you come to those really, really hard times and you think that you've hit the wall and you can't go any further, your trainer, God the Father, can take you one step further. If you're willing to say, and this is an extremely hard prayer, I do not say this lightly. If you're willing to say to the God the Father, Please, God, do whatever it takes in this situation to accomplish your objectives. I had people come to me after the last service saying, that was really, really hard because you don't know what I'm facing right now. But I do, I've I've been there. When we get to the point where we're willing to say, God, I surrender this to you, do whatever you have to take, 
he can work with that. God will respond to that because then he knows he has a, a genuine, tender heart to work with and to shape. God will take you up on it. But that's a hard prayer request, right? I mean, that's not just me saying that. You, you agree with that? It, it's a hard, hard prayer request. Put yourself in that place. Maybe 2016, that can be a great goal for you. God, I want to spiritually grow in my walk with you. Do whatever you have to do. Dangerous prayer. I'm gonna pray for us with that in mind to end this service today. Would you join me in that? Father, I pray that you would send this body of believers out the door with all the enthusiasm, all the encouragement possible because we know that you love us despite ourselves, despite the way that we see ourselves. You love us because you see us through the lens of what Jesus did, his, his blood that was shed for us and how he made us righteous and you see us that way, you see us holy. But Father, while we inhabit this planet, I know that you see far more capability in us than we see in ourselves. So I invite that for the sake of this church, for the, the sake of this assembly, that you would take us beyond what we think we can do. Take us to what you know we can do. Continue to refine us. Father, I pray for that individually, and I pray for that corporately. You know us intimately. You know what we're capable of. So God, I ask as, as the leader of this group that you would take us to that place where we're surrendered to you, and you will shape us and use us for the expansion of your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.